Amen. Well, if you are a child or a children's worker, now's the time for you to head back. I don't know if I need to preach again now. I mean, half the people just left. Well, good morning. As I've already said, it is good to see you. And uh, I, my wife and I and our family enjoyed a, a week off last week as we got to spend some time together as a family. Uh, but it is always good to be in the Lord's house with God's people who I love. And so it is good to see you. Uh, if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 1. And so as you're flipping there, um, I want to ask a question. Um, have you ever come into a season like Easter or, th- or Christmas where you kind of have this idea, like, I want to really be intentional. I really want to really focus on the Lord. I really want to absorb everything that this season has to offer only to then wake up maybe Christmas Eve, maybe Christmas morning, and you're like, oh my gosh, I got lost in all of the good stuff, the trappings of the season, but I never focused on the heart of the season. Any, anybody ever felt that way before? All right, I have a small crowd of honest people. Uh, I have felt that way a lot in my life, and um, you know, I love Christmas. I mean, we, it, it is a national, I mean, it is a McCallum holiday on November 1st. We, we, as I think Dylan Green said on Facebook, we put away those pumpkins. I can't remember what he said, you heathens or something, and put up the Christmas stuff. Like, that's what we do November 1st. We listen to Christmas music. I wake the whole house up with it. It is like, man, I want to celebrate it as much as I possibly can, as much as America will let me without shaming me. And I feel like there's enough people that will let me do it on November 1st. That's what we do. I love Christmas. And it's easy for me to then find myself in the things that are great, like the food and the the movies. We've already watched like six. And believe it or not, A Christmas Story Christmas is actually pretty good. Um, So we've already watched a lot of movies. We listen to music. we, We love it. But it's easy to then wake up unintentionally. Christmas Eve or Christmas Day, and you're like, man, I I feel like I have given my attention to everything but the heart of what Christmas is really about. And so Advent actually helps us avoid that in some ways. Uh, Advent is, as I already said, is a season in the church calendar that churches across denominations have celebrated for years, for centuries, as a matter of fact is a way, you know, like some churches actually follow a calendar and on the church calendar, Advent are the four Sundays prior to Christmas Day. That's that's when you celebrate it, are those four Sundays. And so it's a way of tuning our hearts to really what this season is all about. In the midst of the other good things that we do as a culture around this day, it's too easy to overlook really the reason for the season, as they say. And so to prepare our hearts, I wanted us to celebrate Advent. And depending on where you grew up, you may have already done this before. You may have done a candle before. Like I grew up in a Southern Baptist church and we did the wreath. I know other more liturgical, like if you grew up Lutheran or if you grew up Presbyterian or if you grew up Catholic, you, you do these types of celebrations. And so depending on how you grew up or where your background is, this may not be that new to you. Some churches look predominantly at his second coming. Some churches look predominantly at his first coming at Christmas. Some churches take a theme. So maybe they would do, if today's the candle of hope, they'd do a sermon on hope. Next week, is the candle of faith or whatever. They might do that. What I felt like for us, though, as I, as I looked at our church, as I thought about where we've been in 2022 as a church, I felt like there was one theme in particular that really rang true for me and I feel like would really ring true for us 
And that is the theme of hope. It's the theme of hope. Hope is, is an interesting thing. It is probably one of the strongest emotions that there is in really just the whole human existence. Uh, it's funny because really what hope does is it carries us along through the tough times. Like we, we have this hope that tomorrow might be a little bit better. It, it gives roots to our souls in the struggles of life that it won't always be this way. It, it sort of tethers us to something firm when everything around us feels lost or unstable. It just feels like nothing good can come out of a situation, but sometimes hope is enough to get you through. But the thing about hope, being that it's such a strong emotion, is it doesn't always play out. And that can be detri detrimental to us. It, sometimes we have hopes that are unrealistic, just like it's just kind of a blind hope. Uh, it's not really tethered to anything in particular. And you see, because hope is such a strong emotion, it can be a double-edged sword because if, if it's so strong and yet it's a false hope or an unrealistic hope, what happens when you lose it? What happens if you had a false hope and something that never came to be? You see, the context of our teaching text today in Matthew chapter one is all about hope. But it's interesting, you won't actually find the word hope in either of the first two chapters of Matthew. But that's where, even though we're in a series called A Thrill of Hope, I found just the Lord telling me to root down deeper into Matthew. It's interesting, the Lord has given me a lot of um, sermons this year out of Matthew. Like the first sermon I preached uh, after Dan resigned was out of Matthew 11. During Holy Week, the Lord led me to Matthew. We went through Matthew's account of Jesus' last week on earth. And then we've been in the Beatitudes. And, and so I really kind of felt like, man, I really would like to finish the year in Matthew and Matthew's account of Advent, of Jesus coming. And so that's where we're gonna spend our time. And even though the word hope isn't in there, there's all kinds of hope. In fact, the context of it is the fact that they are waiting for a Messiah. Israel had a lot of hope. They went through a lot as a nation, as God's people over the centuries. But they were always rooted in the fact that they believed that they were God's people and that God would send a Messiah. Now, they didn't know when he would come. I mean, there's some, some prophecy in Daniel 9 that might have made them think like, well, maybe it's this time or maybe it's gonna be around this season in our history. But, but no one really knew when it was coming. They just kind of expected it. And you can imagine, like, this is actually the biblical idea of hope. See, for us, when we think about hope, a lot of times we think about wishful thinking, like maybe Nathan will be shorter today, right? Wishful thinking. But for the Bible writers, hope was an assurance of a future reality. Hope was a, an assurance of a future reality. But you would have to imagine that for a lot of the Israelites, they had to get to this point where they're like, is this really going to happen? We return from exile, but yet we're still kind of in exile in our own land. You have prophets that speak to that. You have to think that some of them were wondering, okay, Daniel 9 should have already come to fulfillment by now. What are we getting wrong? Is this going to happen? And you can imagine that for some of them, it was setting them up for even deeper despair as they maybe start to think, maybe hope was never going to come. You ever been there? Hoping for something believing just positive it was on its way, only to find yourself still waiting, still wondering, feeling like, am I even a fool for believing in this at all? Well, here's the deal. As Christians, we believe that God did send his Messiah 
as he promised. He sent Jesus, his preexistent son, to earth. And he brought more hope with him than any of us really dare to believe. But the reality is that that first advent at Christmas and the difference in the, the dissonance between that advent and us waiting for him to return, there's a lot of pain, there's a lot of sorrow, there's a lot of hurt, and it can be easy for us to lose hope. And so what can we learn from Jesus's first advent about hope that might speak into our present fears and our present desires? Well, that's the question that I actually wanna answer over the next four weeks as we look at the beginning of Matthew. And so to start today, we'll be looking at Matthew chapter one, looking at verses one through 17. This is God's word. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amminadab. Amminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram, Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amon, Amon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abihud, Abihud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Elihud, Elihud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Matan, Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who's called the Messiah. Verse 17, thus were the 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Now, oddly, no one volunteered to read for me this week. <laughs> I tried to pitch it to a few folks, but I was like, yeah, you know what, I'll do it for you. As a kid, I remember uh, reading the Bible. Um, you know, my dad had this thing where he was just always trying to encourage me to read the Bible. And I just had this memory, like every morning I would get up and I would see him in the living room reading his Bible, praying, and it left a mark on me. So every time I would try to get back into a groove reading the Bible as a teenager, as a young teenager in particular, you know, you always just kind of want to start with, with the New Testament. And so I remember like opening up Matthew and being like, mm, I'm going to skip to verse 18. I'm not even going to read that. I mean, the names were predominantly like unrecognizable, um, really almost unpronounceable. And they just kind of seemed like it was pointless for the most part. And so I just thought, you know, I'm just going to jump down to the birth of Jesus. I know that. We'll start with verse 18. But 
Matthew is starting his gospel this way for a reason. And believe it or not, there's a lot of hope to be found in these 17 verses. And so I want us to look at it, and what, what I want us to do is just to see three things out of this. I want us to see the reality of Christmas hope, the reality of it. I want us to see the range of Christmas hope, and I want us to see the results of Christmas hope, okay? So the reality of Christmas hope, the range of Christmas hope, and the results of it. And there are two realities to me, I think that, I mean, there are several, but there are two that quickly I think we can consider as we look at the hope that Christmas brings. And the first reality is the reality of the person. Now, this may seem obvious to some, but I think for some in our world, it's not that obvious. Jesus really lived on earth. Okay, Jesus really lived on earth. In history, he lived on earth. For some people, they, they want to explain. That, like I've seen uh, critics of Christianity that want to say that Jesus of Nazareth never existed, which is crazy. The people closest to him could have refuted that. The people closest to that time could have easily shown that that wasn't true. It's not like this thing got a, like Christianity kind of took off, you know, three or four centuries after he came. I mean, it could have easily been refuted, but it, it wasn't. He was a real person. He really lived. And Matthew's taking time to show us that the genealogy shows that he has an actual family line. Genealogies back then were a big deal. They were sort of like a resume, so to speak, of your lineage or your pedigree. So of the many things that Matthew is showing us with the genealogy, one that seems rather obvious, but is oftentimes, I think, overlooked, it's rather obvious and it's necessary is to consider that Matthew is giving us the reality that Jesus was a physical person with a physical family line. He was pre-existent son of God. He wasn't born on Christmas as though he'd never existed before, but that he took on human flesh as part of a family line at Christmas. He wasn't a spirit. He wasn't folklore. Jesus wasn't a fable. He was a person, the reality of the person. But not just that, it shows us the reality of God's promises. Matthew begins his genealogy with who? Abraham. God made a pretty significant promise to Abraham in Genesis. God promised Abraham that he would bless the entire world through his line. But Abraham was 75, I think, years old when he received that promise. His wife, Sarai, was 10 years younger than him, and she was barren. They had no kids, right? But God fulfills his promise. When? 25 years later... When Abraham is 100 and Sarah is 90, they have their first and only son, Isaac. Now, I became a dad again at 36, and I thought that was hard. 100. But God fulfills his promises. And nothing is impossible for God. He blesses Abraham. He sees his son, Isaac, to fulfillment. And then from there, Isaac has his own children, Jacob and Esau, and the lineage begins to grow. God fulfills his promises. And as God promised, Abraham's descendants would be as vast as the sand on the seashore or the stars in the heavens. So they were. But the point of God's promise that Abraham's family would be a blessing 
to the nations was not because of the sum total of Abraham's descendants, but one descendant in particular. You see, Israel, yes, was called to be a light to the nations. They were called as a nation to be a blessing to the world, but the ultimate blessing God intended through Abraham was through one, his son Jesus. And Matthew is trying to show us that Jesus is in the lineage of Abraham, part of his family. It may have taken more centuries than anyone cared to believe or knew, but God knew and he kept his promise to Abraham. But also it shows us the reality of God's promise to David (coughs) because God made a promise to David as well. If you look at 2 Samuel 7, 16, this is what God says to David. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. God was going to establish the throne of David forever. One of his descendants would rule forever. This was a promise. And Matthew shows that God keeps his promise because Jesus comes who? Through the line of David, establishing an everlasting kingdom, a counter kingdom, if you will, that we've talked about as he brought the kingdom of God from heaven to earth. You see, the reality of Christmas hope is all throughout these first verses of Matthew. And it's found in the fact that Jesus was a real person with a real lineage and family line. And he was a sign that when God makes a promise, you can put your hope in it. He will see it to completion. Maybe not when you or I expect it, but he will keep his promise. Hope, the assurance of a future Reality, and Jesus is the reality of Christmas hope. Think in your life, like what hopes have you had throughout your life that God has fulfilled for you? Use those as a, as a fuel in moments where you're not sure that he will be there. And sometimes those hopes take years, decades to play out. What are you hoping for now that you don't have? Are they actual promises from God? I think sometimes we hope in things that we think God said that he maybe never said, that he maybe never promised. Maybe you heard it from somebody like me on a stage of the Bible open. Maybe your mother or or, or grandfather told you these things were true over the years. Maybe Maybe they aren't, but my guess is that there are things that you are hoping for that God has promised in his word And I just want to encourage you from the genealogy of all places that God keeps his promises in his time to not lose hope. As the old song goes, we sang this chorus when I was a kid. In fact, it was really uh, a song that I, as a 15-year-old, kind of hung on to as I moved away from where I grew up, eight hours south to Hot Springs. And the end of this chorus says, when you can't trace God's hand, trust his heart. And for many of you, you're like, I don't see his hand in my life. I don't know what he's doing. But you can trust his heart because the genealogy says that there's a reality to the hope we have in Christ. Christmas is a reminder that God is a promise-keeping God who stepped into history as a real person so that he could be the amen to every promise he ever made. But the genealogy at the beginning of Matthew teaches us something else about hope. It shows us the range of Christmas hope. 
As I've already said, genealogy is a lot like a resume. And when you look at Jesus's genealogy, you would think it would be filled with the best of the best, like the who's who of Israel's heritage. And you do have some of those. You see some heroes in the lineage, right? I mean, we've previously mentioned Abraham. He's, he's the father of the Jewish faith. And Jesus comes through his line. You have Isaac, right? The child of the promise that God was able to deliver through barrenness. He's the son of Abraham and Sarah, and he's in the line, a hero. You have Jacob. If you ever wonder, like, where does the nation of Israel get its name? It, gets, it got its name from a person, from Jacob. And God changes Jacob's name, the son of Isaac, to Israel. And then Jacob has 12 sons, and those are the 12 tribes of Israel. But you have all these heroes. You have King David in there too. I mean, he's a major hero. He killed Goliath. Did y'all know that? Have you heard that before? David killed Goliath. He was a king. He was a poet. He was a songwriter. He was a harp player. He was like, you know, homecoming king, right? Probably at some point. He was a shepherd who killed a lion with his bare hands. And then down there in the genealogy, you see Josiah, who became a king at a young age, who completely reformed worship in Israel. He took idols and got rid of them. He refocused the, the worship of God onto Yahweh heroes. You see him. And one would expect if God was to come out of eternity and to put on human flesh, you would expect him to come from a line of heroes. But what's shocking is the amount of zeros that you see in the lineage. Because you have some, first of all, what I'm calling some cultural zeros. And here's what I mean by that. Don't, don't leave. But there are, there are women there. And in ancient times, you didn't put women in your genealogy. It just wasn't really what you did. You, you traced your line through the father. But here we have women in the genealogy. We don't have a woman. It's not like, and you know, since he didn't technically have a father, God was his father, we got to put Mary in there. No, there are five women in his genealogy. These are shocking additions for Matthew to throw in in the culture in which they live. And we don't have the time to dive into all the details around all of them, but I just want to briefly explain a little bit about them. Because one of them that you see here, we read about, the first one that we see is Tamar. Now, if you're bored, read Genesis 38 today and your eyes will be like, what? Because Tamar birthed twins to Judah, her father-in-law, because she was widowed twice by his sons. She married his first son, Judah's first son. He died. We find out because of wickedness in him. But I don't know that Judah caught on to that. So she marries the second one. He dies. And so the custom would be for Judah to give her his third son. But he's like... I can't have you striking out on all my kids, right? It's like he looks at her like she's the black widow. So he, he kind of tells her like, you, you can have my youngest when he gets of age if you'll just remain a widow until then. But he was deceitful. He wasn't really gonna give her the son. So she takes matters into her own hands. Judah, Judah I think, is a widower at the time. She dresses up like a harlot at the city gate. And he doesn't realize it's her. And she ends up having twins with him. That's in the line of Jesus. And these women are also shocking, not just because they're cultural zeros, because they're women, but some of them are of a different race. They're, they're racial zeros, so to speak. I mean, Jews are not really too fond of other races because they were God's people. But the next woman we see here is Rahab in the genealogy. Rahab 
was a Canaanite prostitute in Jericho. But she, when the spies that Joshua sent in, you can see her story in Joshua, when the spies came in to look at the land as they were getting ready to take the promised land, Rahab basically hid them from the enemies and let them out her window and saved their lives. And in so doing, she asked that they would remember her because she believed in God. And she finds herself not just a place in the people of God as a Canaanite, but in the lineage of the Messiah, Rahab. Not just Rahab, her son, Boaz, married Ruth. I'll give you a guess where you can find that story. Ruth, there's four chapters of it. She was a foreigner. She was a Moabite. She also was a widow. And she comes back with her mother-in-law who was a Jew, Naomi, to Israel and meets Boaz, the kinsman redeemer. The book of Ruth is a beautiful picture, an Old Testament picture of the gospel that God was going to be bringing in Christ. And not only does she find herself in the lineage, she ends up, a Moabite woman ends up King David's grandma. It keeps going because there's not just cultural zeros. There's not just racial zeros. We've got some moral zeros. And some of those moral zeros are intertwined with some we've already talked about as heroes because the fourth woman listed is not even named. She's simply Uriah's wife. What's that about? Like she had a name. It was Bathsheba. Why didn't Matthew put her name in there? Why didn't he say, and David fathered Solomon, the son of Bathsheba, I think it's more of a reminder. It's not a slide on Bathsheba. Most likely, as the other sermons and commentators I read on this believe that it's more of a slide on David. It's basically putting this in here to say that even the heroes in Jesus' line, even the kings in Jesus' line have blemishes. Who was Uriah's wife, Bathsheba? Well, who was Uriah? Well, he was David's friend and leader in the army. And David coveted his wife. And so while Uriah is out at battle, David calls for the wife to come in and they end up getting pregnant. So David now needs to cover his tracks. So he sends a letter to the guard to put Uriah at the front of the line to be killed in battle. David now an adulterer and a premeditated murderer and yet in marrying Bathsheba, Uriah's wife, we have Solomon that comes to that line and ultimately the Messiah. Abraham, he had his moral struggles as well, lying about the relationship that he really had with his wife, calling her his sister for, out of fear instead of trusting God. Jacob deceived Isaac and his brother Esau. Judah, as we already talked about, treated Tamar unfairly. Solomon had a thousand wives and concubines. Here's the point. Do you see the range of Christmas hope? From heroes to cultural, racial, moral zeros, and all of them intertwined, they're all in Jesus' family. And he came to make a way for those that would have had faith in the covenant of God to be redeemed by the coming Messiah. All the faithful and some of the unfaithful that struggled and everyone in between find themselves in the range of Christmas hope. And brother or sister, you find yourself in the range too. And so do I. We may not be in Jesus' genealogy. Maybe we don't have Jesus in our physical lineage, but Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And that is every one of us in this room apart from Christ. When we are born, 
we are lost. Our hearts are set in on itself and he came for us. If you are alive and breathing today, you are still inside the range of Christmas. Hope, you find yourself there. I find myself there, the good, the bad, and those of us who are both. He came for those outside even of his lineage. And what's so shocking is that John 1 tells us that even though we are outside of the lineage of Christ, look at what John says in verse 1, 12, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. A new lineage. Children, born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Brothers and sisters, no matter how you feel about your pedigree, no matter how you feel about your genealogy, no matter how you feel about what resume you have to offer God, you are not outside the range of Christmas hope. So if Jesus is the reality of Christmas hope and he comes for people of all races, of all moral backgrounds, of all religious backgrounds, of any societal stature, what is the result then? What are the results of this type of hope? Well, Matthew 1.1 says this, that it, it uses the term the genealogy. And the Greek word there is Genesis. And it's interesting, like we know what Genesis typically means, right? Matthew is speaking at the beginning of his gospel about beginnings. But as I've already said, John 1 says that Jesus doesn't have a beginning. He, like the wreath, the, the circle, he is eternal, always been. He was there at creation. He was before creation, Jesus, the Son of God, preexistent, eternal. He doesn't have a beginning. So what is Matthew talking about when he talks about the beginning at the beginning of his gospel? Well, I think if you look at the course of his gospel as we have, he's talking about new beginnings with the kingdom of God at hand. New beginnings with God's promised Messiah. New beginnings of people who can enter the kingdom of God. Who? The broken, the meek, the poor in spirit the Gentile. Christmas is the announcement that new beginnings are available in Jesus. Which means that for me and you, one result of Christmas hope is redemption. Our stories can be redeemed. Our sins can be redeemed. Our failures can be redeemed and the mess that we've made of our lives, we can live a life where that mess has been redeemed. You see, the word redeemed means to be purchased back or to apply value to. Like think about if you have a coupon, anybody around here coupon? My mom did that a lot as a kid. Then we just went to Aldi. But um, sorry, that went in my notes. Um, when, you, when you have a coupon, like there's no value to a coupon until you take it to a cashier. And then the cashier applies value to that coupon. You think about like a winning ticket. If you have a winning ticket, it doesn't really have any value in and of itself until you take it to someone that can actually authorize it as value. You see, in the coming of Jesus, through his life, his death, and his resurrection, we can be redeemed. That means that all of the struggle of this life the failures, the sins, Jesus can apply value 
to those moments and bring us all the way back from despair and separation from God. You see, our sins and our failures, they create separation with God apart from Christ. He doesn't just forgive them though when we come to him, he redeems our stories. He takes my running from God in high school, in college, and he redeems it. Not just making it some smudge in my past that he has forgiven me for, but he still uses that story in people's life, some time of trial. I mean, I used to work with college students and I was just blunt with them about the decisions they were making were, were, had way more consequences than they ever realized in the moment. God is able to use that story to help people in time of trial, to help people to repent from their running because I know what it's like to run, to think that, oh, on the other side, there's gonna be something way better only to find myself in a pit because of my own disbelief. The Lord has been able to use this to, to point people to Jesus. I, I will never forget the first time we did ASU move-in out of ASU, well, that's why it's called ASU move-in. It's pretty bold. I remember the first time we did that, uh, I remember walking up the stairs in Kay's Hall and just started weeping because that refrigerator was heavy. No, I'm kidding. It was heavy. It was 12 flights. But I remember weeping because the Lord spoke to me in that moment. It was like, the very campus you ran from me, I have brought you back to serve and to be a blessing. That's redemption. That's applying value to your story he uses our failures to help people see that no one is too far gone for him to redeem their story when they come to Jesus in hope and in faith. This is the new beginning. This is the genealogy of Jesus. Through him, we can be redeemed. And we see in the range of hope that none of us are outside of that. The gospel is the good news of Jesus to cover the whole range of your history and your future. And this type of redemption brings one other result I want to talk about as we finish of, Christ, of Christmas hope, and that's found in verse 17. Thus were the 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Now, this is an interesting way to finish the genealogy because he could have easily just said, as he finished in verse 16, that Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus who was called the Messiah. He could have finished there. What, what, what's the point of verse 17? And a closer look, even, even now, if you think about it, a closer look at the genealogies in the Old Testament seemed to show that, that Matthew even maybe left a few names out along the way. You see, Matthew is deliberately telling the story in a specific way to his predominantly Jewish audience. So what's the deal with 14 generations and what's the deal with him breaking, him breaking them down the way he did and how does this signal a new beginning? What verse 17 shows us in the gospel of Matthew in the genealogy of all places is that rest is the ultimate result of Christmas hope. Rest, how is that? Well, throughout scripture, the number seven is very significant. It is seen typically as a number of completion and it is figuratively used that way. How many days are in a complete week? Seven. What happens on the seventh day of the week? 
rest. Why? Because God shows in the way that he talks about his creation that he rested on the seventh day and then he calls Israel <coughs> to take a Sabbath and to rest on the seventh day. But what's interesting is that Sabbath goes a lot more than that if you read the Old Testament. Because in Leviticus 25, I know this sounds like, whoa, where's he going? This will just take a second, but I think you need to see the context here because Matthew's audience would have known Leviticus 25. In Leviticus 25, verse three, listen to what, what God commands Israel. For six years, sow your fields, and for six years, prune your vineyards and gather their crops. But in the seventh year, the land is to have a year of Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. Do not sow your fields or prune your vineyards. Do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the grapes of your un untended vines. The land is to have a year of rest. Hmm, so now we have both seven, a, a day of rest every seven days and now a year of rest for the land and for you every seven years. But then something really interesting happens. Hang with me, we're, we're almost done. And you get to verse eight, here's what he says. Count off seven Sabbath years. Okay, so it's one every seven. Seven times seven years. So that seven Sabbath years amount to a period of 49 years. Then have the trumpet sounded everywhere on the 10th day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, keep that in mind. Sound the trumpet through your, throughout your land. Consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. Each of you is to return to your family property and to your own clan. The 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. Do not sow, do not reap that what grows of itself or harvest the untended vines for it is a jubilee and is to be holy for you. Eat only what is taken directly from the fields. In the year of Jubilee, everyone is to return to their own property. Okay, so now we're ready. So every seven years, there's a sabbatical year. And then after seven sabbatical years, 49 years, you're to have a Jubilee. And in the year of Jubilee, slaves, servants are to be set free. Land that maybe was in your ancestry, in your heritage, you owned it, but times got hard and you had to sell that land over the last 49 years or at least portions of it to someone else. In the year of Jubilee, you get it back. Land is returned. Servants are returned. And notice like all of this, this is what N.T. Wright says about it. He says, the Jubilee is a fascinating social innovation within the legislation of ancient Israel a sign that relentless buying and selling of land, of goods, and even people won't be the last word. What's the last word? A jubilee. And this jubilee is marked on what day? The day of atonement. When all of Israel's sins are figuratively placed on the sacrifice on the altar, the sacrifice that happened once a year for all the sins of Israel as an entire nation. And this was figurative, of course, in that day, but it's significant that the Jubilee, the setting free, happens on the Day of Atonement every Sabbath or after, after seven Sabbath years. And so this is the context that Matthew is telling the genealogy to a predominantly Jewish audience that Jesus is coming after three sets of 14 generations. Well, if you're very good at math, what's another way of saying three 14s? Six sevens. 
Jesus, to put more simply, coming to earth is the seventh seven. And it's not the seventh year. It's not the seventh Sabbath. It's the seventh seven of generations. Don't you see, Jesus' advent marks ultimate rest as the launching of the jubilee, the ultimate jubilee and the ultimate atonement was coming. We can have rest now by, faith, by placing our faith in Jesus' work on our behalf. We are set free, as I said a couple weeks ago, of trying to qualify ourselves of the hamster wheel that is trying to atone for our sins. We're set free from our lives of attempting to earn our salvation and meaning and we replace it with salvation by grace in an identity as a son or a daughter of God that we receive instead of achieve. We find rest when we are fully seen and fully loved by God and Jesus Christ who sent his son to give us hope in this life. But we can also have rest forever. You see, the rest from our work in this life is just a precursor of a life of rest forever. That God has redeemed your story now will ultimately bring heaven and will ultimately bring heaven to earth at Jesus' second coming gives us rest now as we wait, knowing that we will then have ultimate, ultimate rest forevermore. What rest, what grace, what love, what hope, amen? So the call to action today, you're like, there's a call to action for a genealogy? It's amazing. Who knew there was so much when I was skipping all that as a kid? In the genealogy, the call to action today, if you're not a follower of Jesus, it's just number one, just to tell you, like, if, if you're not sure about Jesus, you're not, not really sure if you believe all this, I just want to remind you that you are not outside the range of hope. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been already, today, what you've said, what you've thought, you are not outside the range of hope that was brought at Christmas but it does require of you to believe in Jesus. That's what John says, for those who believed in his name, he gave them the right to be children of God. You see, today, if you're outside of the children in the family of God because you don't believe in Christ, you are not outside the range of hope, only believe. And when you do, you will find rest. If you are here today as a follower of Christ, I just wanna encourage you with three quick things. Have hope. How, how many in this room, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many in this room in the last calendar year have felt hopeless at the moment? How many of you feel hopeless now? The genealogy says, have hope. He keeps his promises. Even when Israel thought, have we been forgotten? Is he coming? God always had the plan in place for what he wanted to do in his time. 
And when Jesus came, he busted all kinds of categories. He brought more hope than anybody ever dared imagine. It was real. Brother or sister in Christ, have hope. The second thing I want to kind of exhort you to is to surrender your story to redemption. What do I mean by that? I think for a lot of us, we... um, We like to put off a better front than what's really going on. You know, when it comes to our resume, we wanna make it a little more shiny. Wanna leave a few of those things out that maybe are embarrassing or were wicked that we did. But the reality is that God doesn't just forgive you, he wants to redeem your story and to part of that is to own it. I've had several of you tell me over the last few months that it's been encouraging to hear like me be real up here. And my thought with that is not like, I'm not putting on a show. I want you to see me because I want you to see him because he's redeemed so much of my story. Y'all don't even know. And it's not just like college. It's like this week, the struggles of life but he wants to redeem them, not just to forgive them, but to use them in your story. You gotta surrender your story to do it. You gotta be willing to own, like this is where I've been. This is what I've done. This is what I've thought. This is what I'm wrestling with. This is what I'm struggling with. I'm I'm trying to pursue holiness. It is hard sometimes and, and to own that and to let God redeem that, to use that to encourage others. Would you surrender your story for the hope of redemption instead of trying to guard the dark parts so that people don't know you. Yes, there's wisdom in how and when you share those things and who you share some of those things with. But I would encourage you to think through how you could surrender moments in your life that need redemption, that God can use. And then finally, find rest. Because here's the deal, when you surrender your story for redemption, you will find rest because you don't feel like you gotta keep putting on that front that you're, that you're somebody you may not be or that you maybe that you wanna be, but you're just not quite there. Let me, let me just encourage you, none of us are quite there. So wherever you are today, may the Lord encourage you with the hope of redemption that can be found at the advent of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And, as we pray, we're gonna sing, and this is somewhat of a new song. It's kind of a, a, um, a redo of an older classical Christmas song. So some of you may know it, and if you don't know it, I, I would just encourage you if, you, if you know it, sing along if you feel led to. But don't feel the pressure to engage in this as a corporate song, because in, in some ways, like it, you might just need to reflect as you hear this. You might just need to think about what God has done for you. And if that leads you to sing, great. If that leads you to the altar to pray, great. If that leads you to pray in your seat, great. Wherever that leads you, would you just meditate, reflect, sing, pray on the hope that we have in Jesus. Our Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that redemption is found in you and you alone. That we don't have to hide that we don't have to run, that when we come home, you are waiting 
with arms open wide. God, would you help us to see the hope that Christmas brings and would it not just like get the kind of the exterior of our lives different, but would it just root down deep in our hearts? Would you change us? We, we want to be a holy people that reflect your goodness, but would you change us in that way and, and show us areas where you want to redeem our lives? And Father, if there are people in this room today or watching on TV right now that don't know you, would you save them right now? Would you draw them to yourself? Would you give them rest? It's for your beautiful and wonderful name, I pray. Amen.